again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased you're with us. Well, there's really no denying that this has been an extraordinarily challenging year for healthcare leadership teams. They're dealing with an extraordinary set of challenges ranging from staggering financial pressures to regulatory limitations on growth, to the whole workforce culture thing, and now the government weighing in more directly on compliance and corporate crime enforcement. And then, of course, at the executive level, we've got the great resignation cutting a swath through the C-suite. All these issues and more contribute very significantly to the role and function of the board's executive compensation committee. Much like the finance committee, the executive compensation committee is seeing its agenda and the issues being brought before it expand very significantly. And this is for a committee that's already been kept busy with its traditional duties. So today we're going to explore the impact of these developments on the comp committee with two industry experts. First is my good friend, Tim Cotter, Managing Director of Selwyn Cotter, the well-known human resources consulting firm. Tim is, in my experience, the most recognized name in healthcare executive compensation consulting. And we also have with us my longtime partner, Ralph DeYoung, who is pretty much the go-to expert on the law of executive compensation, especially with respect to the healthcare industry. Tim and Ralph, welcome back to the program. We've got a ton of material to cover with this topic, so I think we've agreed to break it into two companion episodes to make it easier for our listeners to follow. I'll say this, it's always an extraordinarily valuable discussion when we have these two fellows together. So as they say in baseball, have your pencils and scorecards ready. Tim, let's start, you know, just taking the big picture. We've been reading the journals. We've been seeing the news reports. With all of the financial pressures going on in the industry right now, what topics are you and Ralph emphasizing as you go through the briefing of the board's compensation committee? Well, for me, I'm, I'm not sure as much as topics that we emphasize as opposed to the topics that are top of mind for these compensation committees today. I mean, first, there is a well a good recognition that uh, of the attraction and retention issues at the executive level. So they've got that. But this is clearly a period where we're going to have to look at more than labor market data. And I think an emerging recognition on the part of compensation committees is that enhancement of compensation is not the sole or even best response to our executive attraction and retention issues. And increasingly, we get these committees trying to focus on the establishment of uh, sticky employment relationships through uh, mission, supportive uh, leadership, uh, teamwork, and building that talent pipeline. So those are things that aren't accomplished in the course of one meeting, but there's a significant uh, focus there. I think the next issue that's top of mind for the committees are what are the individual facts and circumstances? If you've got half the health systems in the United States with negative operating margins, when you see some of the reports with systems uh, losing uh, over a billion dollars, how much money do you have for sustainable adjustments to executive compensation as well as the general workforce? On the other hand, if you're facing a young and mobile executive team, what are your options as we do that? And finally, I think in addition to sustainability, I think that committees are very concerned about institutional fairness, which is if we're taking strong action for the executive team, what are we doing with the frontline people 
who are the ones that uh, really are delivering the care that is the hallmarks of our system. So I think there's a balancing act through all of those. And we're not back in the days where we looked at data that said, oh, the marketplace moved 3%, so let's give everybody a, a 3% increase. The, the facts and circumstances of this are increasingly important. Well, I could not agree with you more, Tim. These are not normal times. I agree that compensation committees, they know the key issues right now. It's not a matter of priming them to make sure that they're aware of the key issues and addressing them. In my view, as as legal advisor to a lot of compensation committees, I'm concerned these days that, that committees are in good, frequent communication with the CEO and the C-suite about compensation issues, about financial sustainability, and about the need for judgment and discretion. These twin challenges of workforce retention and financial sustainability are in direct conflict with each other. And you can't manage one successfully without putting the other in greater peril. And that's the challenge for the CEO and for the comp committee to wrestle with. So these are challenges for the CEO to address. And it's up to the committee to exercise its independent judgment in providing the CEO with the necessary tools to address these competing challenges. And there are no right answers. Every organization is in a different workforce challenge situation and a different financial sustainability situation. So these solutions, alternatives are tailored. They need to be tailored for each organization. And that can only be done through good communication, frequent communication between the committee and the CEO and real creativity in coming up with uh, solutions to these issues. I've got to ask both of you guys a related question that your comments prompt. We're seeing periodically some board members deciding to say, I've had it, I've, this is a little bit too hot for me to handle. I've got other responsibilities and I just can't devote the time necessary to my health system board service right now. Are you seeing any pressure being felt by executive committee members that all of a sudden the duties and the responsibilities just might be more than they signed up for or they bargained for? That's a great question, Michael. The workload on compensation committees is heavier than it's ever been. And compensation committees, I think, work best when they have good structures and a disciplined approach to compensation oversight, when there is a good, rigorous process that is well-managed within the boundaries set by the philosophy, the charter, the various plans and policies, that's the sweet spot for compensation management and compensation committees. That's not where committees are at today. And it is a real challenge for committees to exercise their oversight and to manage the compensation issues that they are called upon to review and approve while exercising substantial amounts of discretion and judgment. It, it is an uncomfortable place for many committees to be right now. So it's only natural that committee members are feeling some sense of, of burnout. That said, 
I see committee members, mostly the vast majority of them rising to the challenge and digging in more than ever before to address these challenges and to help management with the decisions that need to be made to address both the workforce challenge and the financial sustainability challenge. So while I think there is some burnout going on, I think the vast majority of committee members are rising to the challenge. Tim, I noticed in Sullivan Cotter's new management and executive comp survey, which I do read, that their total cash compensation increased by nine and a half percent from 21 to 22. Could you walk us through that, what that data tells you? So those data focus on cohort samples, health system executives, and what it recognizes the compensation in effect on uh, January 1 of 2021 versus January 1 of 2022, with the incentives being the awards paid in the previous year. So while there clearly has been an intense focus uh, on executive recruitment and retention, this increase, in, in our opinion, is largely explained by the recovery of base salaries in 2021. So remember, in 2020, those base salaries moved uh, hardly at all uh, at the uh, executive level. And uh, some executives had their pay frozen throughout the year and in some in a modest number of cases uh, reduced. And then secondly, the uh, performance of the health systems in 2021, so therefore reported in 2022 compensation, uh, also improved from below target to historic target level performance. So you put those two things together, that really explains the 9.5% as opposed to just an intense focus on attraction and retention. It's really the baseline from 2021 was artificially low. There were no changes in incentive award levels, no changes in incentive uh, participation. Tim, I think this shows again that um, statistics can really be misleading, and it's and it really calls for good communication between the comp committee and their compensation consultant to get behind numbers and to figure out what does this really mean? Is this base salary going up? Is it incentives finally paying out? Is it last year's financial stability versus what we're going through now? Getting behind those numbers, I think, is more important than ever because things have changed so rapidly and so markedly from where we were at one year ago. And I find compensation committees are doing that. Those conversations are occurring in these committee meetings, but getting behind those numbers is a more important exercise than ever before. Uh, I agree. Tim, project to next year. What's the impact of inflation? Where, where do you see this number headed? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what health systems are telling us through our survey efforts, but then I'm going to put it in the context of the this just uh, complicated environment we're in. Health systems tell us that for executives and for staff that, you know, they're planning at the median salary increases of 3% at the 75th percentile, 4%. But as 70% of health systems are budgeting additional market adjustment funds. So if you put those together, the typical increase is expected to be between four and, and five percent, you know, at the median. So, and only four percent are saying they're not going to give executives increases. Okay, so you put that together with a world where half the healthcare organizations have negative operating income, 
there's a decline in their cash on hand. How do we reach a point where we give these above average increases? So I think that's going to be as you know, is my initial remarks, Ralph's initial remarks. I think there has to be very careful how do we balance that. And I think that these amounts, I think if the year continues to get tougher, if the economy goes into a recession, I, I think those will be cut back a bit. But for right now, I mean, these statistics I get just gave you, we just collected those in the last month. So I think they're current, but I just, I, I think they're a little over optimistic. I've just gone through a round of compensation committee meetings in the in the past couple of weeks. And, and of course, everyone has a lot of them work with Sullivan Cotter and and have the results of Sullivan Cotter's latest pulse survey showing these exact uh, percentages that you've just described Tim. I'm seeing real caution on salary increases across the board due to the financial challenges. But then I'm seeing less caution, more of a need-based analysis for discretionary bonuses and off-cycle changes to compensation to address the real hotspots, those executives who are flight risks, uh, more promotions occurring because of changes in structure to the executive organization, the executive uh, roles and responsibilities. Uh, So I'm seeing a lot occurring between meetings, um, but real caution on salary increases across the board. And I I would agree. I think we're just going to see more segmentation. We're going to see more special or one-off programs. The other bit of information that we are getting from our surveys, which I think leads to a more cautious interpretation of the data. As I said last year, the, the industry recovered, they played, they paid incentives around target. Right now, uh, there's a, a two to one majority. Uh, large systems are saying they're very likely to play incentives below target. So I think we're going to see some downward pressure on the total cash compensation uh, increases. Um, And again, I think that's because uh, system governance is very focused on paying for performance. Again, we have to recognize the effort. We have to recognize the unanticipated challenges. But increasingly, there's got to be a payment for performance. And if the performance drops, we anticipate the incentive award levels compared to last year will drop. I know we're going to talk about discretion in the incentive area a little bit later in in this podcast, but I think that what I'm seeing is also, and across the board, wanting to provide some incentive pay, but generally not at or above the target level. It's generally below the target level, way more than performance would suggest because of challenges beyond the control of management. And we'll talk about that in a bit, but but what you've just described, Tim, is consistent with the experience I'm seeing at all comp committee levels. Before we move on to that one, let me ask you, you fellows, you shared really interesting information about where the committee is headed. What's the expectation of the CEO in this regard? Is that expectation aligned with where you're saying the executive compensation committee is? Well, it's probably, you know, to me, it's it's individual differences and again facts and circumstances if i go back and look at the median salary increases to ceos last year in health systems they topped the chart 
over 12, 13%, and in the larger system segment, 17% increases in total cash compensation. So I think that's one expectation. I think the second expectation relates to what's going on in the marketplace with some of the turnover in other systems. And that oftentimes leads to an effect where numerous CEOs are contacted about the new position, their boards and their compensation committees want to retain them. So we're seeing a lot of spillover effect when you have a major system opening in the country for the CEO, that spilling over to the efforts of the compensation committee to make sure that their CEO is retained. I agree that uh, in the past year, we've seen a, a lot of activity in locking in the CEO for a specified and more extended period of time through special retention arrangements, special contractual provisions. So I'm not surprised by the data that you just provided, Tim, on what you saw in CEO compensation over the past year. That is consistent with a lot of these special arrangements that organizations that I work with have entered into because the talent market for CEOs has really tightened up. A lot of CEOs are either leaving the industry or have decided to retire. There's so much turnover in the past year that organizations have wanted uh, not only to lock in their CEOs for a specified and longer period of time, but to have some real predictability about eventual succession planning for the CEO position. Uh, that's been incredibly important at the CEO level. And compensation committees are then looking to the CEO to say, now we need you to do the same thing for your direct reports. What's the talent pipeline? Uh, what are your succession plans? How deep is our, our, our bench strength for these positions? Have you identified the flight risks? And that's leading to a lot of off-cycle compensation adjustments as well. Yep. In your perspective, Ralph and Tim, comp committees are taking the great resignation seriously, addressing it thoughtfully. They're not overreacting. I mean, I will tell you that when I read the weekly journals and I get every month uh, Challenger Gray and Christmas's report about another huge percentage of departures in the CEO field, and it's just, it's mind boggling. It sounds to me, fellows, that the comp committee has a responsible handle on that and is not overreacting, but recognizing that it's a threat, not only the CEO, but Ralph, as you say, the, uh, the downstream executive level too. What's your view? One of the interesting things that I've seen in the past two, three years is that there is such a decline in organizations that are planning to go outside conduct a search for their next CEO. And there is a much stronger emphasis that I'm observing of developing from within the next CEO from multiple candidates within the organization and wanting an extended pipeline and therefore entering into four, five, six-year deals with CEOs with a very specific mandate to develop a pipeline of candidates for the next CEO from within, because they know that it's, it's very difficult and very expensive and risky to hire your next CEO on the basis of a search, especially if you don't have a lot of time to do so. So I'm seeing that as a particular point of emphasis 
uh, for compensation committees in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah and a related point, again, I, I think you're seeing this from the committee's perspective of one, more segmentation. So not a, across the board issues, but you know, special and unique programs. So over half the health systems in the US are focused on special one-off retention programs. That's number one. Number two, again, the, the broad recognition that money is not the sole or only uh, answer. And so if you're what? trying to if you're trying to control your risk, you're trying to control your risk, you're you're really focusing on the internal uh, development. And then finally, again, it comes down to the facts and, and circumstances. Uh, some of our CEOs are in, in this time are incredibly attractive to other organizations. And we're seeing some very significant offers made to move people from one to another. So sometimes the compensation committee may have to uh, spend more than it would like but real feels it's absolutely necessary to the long-term uh, stability of the leadership team and maintain, maintaining systems, mission, and viability. Well, you know, th this is one area, and we, we'll, we'll get back to this later on, but Ralph, I'm thinking of your comment about the, the homegrown as opposed to going outside. And I think we're going to be seeing, and note, people who are following our conversation today are going to note that there are a couple of issues where the focus of a thoughtful compensation committee and their reasonable decisions are going to come into conflict with the same thought processes of other board committees. The executive search and succession committee might have a different perspective on the need to go outside and the search consultants may also have a different perspective. I think you know, who knows what's right? I think we're going to see, though, that there'll be a number, as we leave our, our two-part conversation, there are going to be a number of areas in which the, the best practices, the best thoughts of one committee, I don't want to use the word conflict, but conflict with a lowercase c with those of another committee. Ralph, you have some thoughts. I agree with you that the scope of the compensation committee's charter mandate responsibilities in the area of succession planning for the CEO position is not always terribly clear, and it isn't always the compensation committee's decision and area of responsibility itself. That often either the executive committee or a separate search committee or a different committee of the board is responsible perhaps for evaluating the CEO perhaps for setting CEO goals. And certainly we often see that it's a different committee that's responsible for succession planning of the CEO. And then they leave it to the comp committee to decide on the compensation. So committee mandates, committee uh, scope of responsibility can be in conflict in this really important area. It's important for compensation committees that uh, take on a greater focus on CEO succession planning to make sure that the relative and distinct roles of different committees of the board are ironed out first so that everybody knows what it is the compensation committee will be doing and what it won't be doing and leaving to another committee and making sure there's good coordination between those committees. 
intra-board turf battles. We'll talk about that in a few more minutes. But Tim, I want to come back to you on something that where you were heading, and that's the whole concept of uh, differentiation of rewards in a manner that links up with the organization's short and long-term leadership plans. Do you think the segmenting approach is going to be necessary? Is that here to stay? Well, I think it's absolutely necessary and absolutely necessary in, in two ways. Uh, the first is our recruitment markets in the major health systems as they develop are increasingly changing. So if you're in the health plan business, uh, you're going to be out looking at labor markets of the major insurers to get the kind of leadership talent you need. And that leadership talent, because those systems are typically very large, is likely to be quite expensive. So you probably, if you're looking at health plans or you're looking at some of your investment in for-profit adventures, you're going to have to use different kinds of compensation models. The second issue is we talked about, again, the need for facts and circumstances uh, and the need to be good stewards of resources. That's why half of the health systems in the U.S. today have implemented or considering implementing special arrangements for executives to address attraction and retention issues. So those might be special incentive awards. They might be enhanced sign-on bonuses, relocation awards. So as we look at it, it's certainly, again, we, we have to be cognizant of internal equity. Uh, but the facts and circumstances typically lead us to have the ability to better differentiate our programs than maybe we would have done 10 years ago. I agree with your comments, Tim. We are certainly seeing that as well. I guess my view is that there just isn't enough money available in health systems today to treat everybody the same. And as long as committees are going to be exercising discretion and judgment anyway, I think their view is we might as well segment our approach in the sense that we want to put our money on those who are most critical to reward and retain as our key leaders. And they're looking to the CEO to help identify who those leaders are. Those are the ones that are going to be uh, rewarded through compensation more disproportionately during this time. Agreed. Uh, fellas, before we break for the day and pick up again our conversation in part two, I want to get back to the point Ralph was discussing before, the potential for, you know, just uh, pressure between charters of various different committees, whether it's executive comp and succession. And now, perhaps, not perhaps, probably certainly executive compensation and audit and compliance with the Department of Justice's September 15th corporate and crime enforcement guidelines and their very significant emphasis on compensation incentives and deterrence with particular focus on clawbacks. And of course, we note that the SEC is also cranking up its enforcement of the Sarbanes-Solved clawback provisions. I think from the Audit and Compliance Committee's perspective, they'll see this thrusting the comp committee into the world of compliance and the need to work together to figure out a solution. But Ralph, you've just been through a run of multiple comp committee meetings, some of which I'm sure occurred after the government weighed in. Is this on their radar screen at all? I don't think it is yet. No, I think that the twin challenges that we've talked about of workforce stability uh, being competitive to recruit, retain key leaders, that challenge and the challenge of, of the operating environment, financial, 
patient satisfaction, employee satisfaction, quality scores. I mean, the, the challenge, those challenges of the operating environment versus workforce retention are so strong right now. They are, it's almost like they're blotting out the sun for uh, comp committees. They don't see any other issues right now. It's difficult to focus on other issues. I think it's an important area, of course, making sure that your compensation reward system is aligned with an environment of high compliance for the organization. But I would say it's too early to expect compensation committees to be able to focus on that. We should also remember that committees typically have a great deal of discretion over incentive awards all the way to uh, making the final decision on incentive awards. So if there were compliance concerns or issues to address, they would have the opportunity to override the mechanical workings of incentive plans uh, with their discretion uh, all the way to making final awards. So we see a little bit of it there, but as a major issue for compensation committees to focus on, I think it's too early for that. Yeah, Michael, I think the uh, lift would be pretty big. Today, you've got about uh, 15% of health systems that would have a clawback included in their annual incentive program, and about 25% include one in their long-term incentive program. Very little evidence of incentive measures focused on uh, compliance. So other than the issue that uh, Ralph brings up of the committee having the ultimate discretion in the end in most in healthcare incentive plans to override calculated awards, and especially in in terms of bad behavior, the playing field indicates they've got a long way to go to uh, have the kinds of programs that the DOJ seems to be implying uh, in their recent pronouncements. And Tim, when is it safe to bring this up to the committee level? Because the government's going to be coming out with more explicit directions on their expectations this area this fall. And you're going to have some audit committee members a little nervous about this and saying that their fiduciary necks are on the line if they don't maintain an effective compliance program. Who's the right person to raise this with the compensation committee and kind of nudge them and say, gang, we need to start thinking creatively here? Is it the CLO? Is it the CVPHR? Is it Sullivan Cotter? Is it Ralph? How does this issue get pushed in front of the comp committee? Well, for me, I think it's a, it's going to be facts and circumstances, but I think it's largely the leadership of the chief legal officer and the chief compliance officer. I find in most situations, the audit committee and the compensation committee where those duties overlap work together uh, pretty well. So I think it's going to be an issue of the explanation and importance of it. And so a lot of it's going to depend on how much exposure they have probably on the physician side to compliance issues. Uh, but I would think that the chief legal officer is really the lead for that. Tim, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the physician compensation compliance issues, because that's for a lot of compensation committees. I know our focus today is executive comp, but a lot of compensation committees also have a mandate to review and approve certain physician compensation arrangements. And that's where the compliance discussions really get interesting. And that's where the focus will be going forward. So perhaps uh, we should have a podcast just on physician compensation and the DOJ's pronouncements as they apply to that process. 
We'll do that after my next annual physical with my doctor, though, please. Okay, guys. But I do think we have to keep in mind, though, as we wrap up for today's part one of the presentation, that the government's focus is on shifting the incentive, compliance incentive, and that the risk of compliance harm onto the CEO as opposed to the shareholders or the organization's constituency. And it's the individual accountability factor. It's obviously something that we're going to be talking about with our comp committees in the future. Guys, let's take a break for the rest of today. We'll pick up again in a couple of weeks with part two of this presentation. And we thank you so much for your super interesting thoughts. Thanks for allowing me to participate, Michael. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate it. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.